Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I love people who love cats and dogs, which is why I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, and the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know. Every week, I bring you conversations with experts and authors who share our fascination with the animals in our world. This program originated and continues for the 13th year on 88.3 WLIW-FM, Long Island's only NPR station. Dog Talk is a production of Pet Media Inc., which is solely responsible for its content. There is a podcast library with more than 700 previous shows at RadioPetLady.com, along with my other pet talk shows like Cat Chat and Good Dogs. This show is made possible in part with the support of Waruva, a family-owned pet food company that makes high-protein recipes for cats and dogs. The show is also brought to you with the generosity of Dr. Elsie's Precious Cat, a privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian. Today's guests are Matthew Saleh and Rose Tucker, the co-directors and producers of an extraordinary documentary that you can stream called We Don't Deserve Dogs from All Around the World. Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein will be here to talk about natural tick prevention to avoid the dangers of the chemical tick collars. And Sterling Davis will be here, known as the Trap King, which is just what he is. Well, I really have a treat in store for everybody. It's horrible that theaters are closed during COVID. But one good thing is that you can actually virtually see some amazing films that might never come to your local art house, or maybe you don't even have a local art house anymore. The film world is so shrunken, nothing to do with the pandemic. You are going to be able to travel the world on the back of this extraordinary couple, a couple in real life and as filmmakers, Matt Halle and Rose Tucker. They've made a film called We Don't Deserve Dogs. And it really is everything I ever dreamed of seeing in a movie. It's like the dog film festival, but one vision and one point of view, and yet many sights and sounds and ways that people live with dogs. Matt and Rose, welcome to the show. Congratulations on what honestly looks to me like it would have been a lifetime's work to put this film together. And yet you're still both fairly young and have made other movies. So you obviously work at an incredible pace or you were allowed to before COVID. Congratulations on having already been in some amazing film festivals, but also in now being available to people for, in a virtual streaming way so that people can take this journey with you. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thanks for having us today. It's a pleasure. The movie is the pleasure. The movie is extraordinary. I have a question for you that may not make total sense to the audience until they've seen it, but it's many short stories, if you will, that take place from Santiago, Chile, to the to the mountains of Romania, to, well, the problem is you don't really know where all the places are, and you clearly made that as a, as a as a decision to not say, in some way in the film. Now you're in Santiago, Chile. Now you're in Romania. Now you're in Finland. Was that on purpose that all the stories flow together? So that really your point is that the way we live with dogs, while it could be different, that, that the connection is the same universally? 
Yeah, I think you've, you've pretty much hit the nail on the head. You know, I think what we wanted to do was really focus in on those individual relationships. This is a person, they could be anywhere in the world, and this is their dog. And I think, you know, it, it in a way, it, you know, it almost doesn't matter where they are because mm-hmm. it's because it's such a universal story. And and like you said, that flow from one story to the other is 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 definitely a, a part of it. And I, we do in the credits, we do have a list of all the locations just to satisfy everyone. <laughs> for those that just need to know. <laughs> I saw that. I saw that. But while you're watching, you're like, oh my god, what's that language? Because the subtitles are excellent, of course. They're there, but they're not irritating, or they don't get in the way of the beauty of it all. You're like, okay, this is somewhere in Africa. Does it matter? Do I need to know where in Africa it is? Shouldn't I know? And it turns out it's former child soldiers in Uganda. And that's one of the most extraordinary ones. Uh, I I just, Mm. I don't know. How did you find these pockets of wonderment between dogs and people? How did you find out that in Uganda, there's a group working with former child soldiers who are completely traumatized by the horrors that they were forced to commit or saw? And they all have these dogs that look like clones of each other. It's extraordinary. (laughs) Where did you find this story? Much less, weren't you amazed by those I want one of those dogs very oh, much. Oh, they're beautiful dogs. They're beautiful dogs. Well, yeah, the story in, in Uganda was one of the obviously most powerful stories we came across, but it was also one of the last stories we filmed. Oh. Um, we'd been, you know, on the road for six months or so filming everything else, and we hadn't filmed a story in Africa um, and, and sort of had been struggling a little bit on that front. And it was one day that I was just doing some Google research, no. and I think I just typed in, I thought, let's just pick a random country and add the word dog i think i t- t- typed uganda dog and and i i my hit upon god. this group <laughs> the oh big my fix. god yeah and i read about what they're doing with the comfort dog project and straight away we were like we have to go there we have to film these stories um so we got in contact with the organization and literally later that day we were on the phone no. and coordinating yeah come on coordinating over. our visit i think we were there about three weeks later so you know it was one of the fun things about this film has been that we because we sort of it's just the two of us and we you know sort of make it completely independently is when it when it when lightning strikes you can just get on a plane and just get it it's so cool. You're the director, Matt, and mm-hmm. Rose is the producer and does the sound. And do both of you edit? Yes. 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 So pretty much just <laughs> the two of us. When, we, when we're filming in a country, we, we normally have a guide and a translator to help right. us um, sort of do that. But yeah, that's pretty much it. That's incredible. And, and, and obviously, it's bound you together and not put you at odds with each other. It's an incredibly close relationship to travel and film together, but then to make these editing decisions. Most documentaries, almost everything winds up on the editing room floor. Do you feel because of your closeness to each other and a shared vision in any film you make, but particularly this one, that you can be more economical in your time? Not that footage anymore really counts, like in the olden days when there were cans of film. But do you feel that you're able to capture what you want more efficiently and effectively because you do this together than shooting, I don't know, 100 hours and using 10 minutes? 
Absolutely. And it just comes from experience. And Matt and I have worked together for, you know, 14 odd years now. Um, and we've, you know, gone through this process a few times. Um, we worked on a, a feature documentary before this one where we did shoot a lot more and a lot more did hit the just cutting room. Just floor. out of uncertainty. And, mm. you, know, right. so, you know, you've traveled to this, um, you know, um, exotic corner of the the world and you're like, oh, we'll just, should, do we stop? When do you right. stop? You know, right. you, just, you go like, just one more. What if we we need it what if we need it and then with this one i think we were much more disciplined yeah we were we we could almost edit it in our heads as we were filming it so we were much more economical and we knew when we sort of had it in the can so to speak i felt that when i was watching it i thought because when you're talking to people about their life and their life with the dog in their life which is the mm. the the range is so huge in this movie so huge mm. i mean mm. from the ridiculous to the sublime to the heart rending to the heart warming and mm. and yet you would think well maybe they could have talked two more hours and gotten that one shot or that one comment or that one line but you got them all it's like the you really somehow you got those people to really focus on you i'm i'm guessing it's how you set up the conversation for example you have a 33 year old single mother I mean, a single mother of a dog. She's single. <laughs> I, I said that all wrong. She's not married. She doesn't have children, doesn't want to be married or have children, has a doting mother, human mother, and a whole closet of outfits for her Yorkie. Now, in lots of films that have been in the New York Film Festival, there there have been either sort of tongue-in-cheek or mocking or funny or celebratory mm. pictures, if you will, stories of women like this or people like this, not just only women. But the way you captured it, it's, it's really quite amazing. This woman's openness, you must have introduced yourselves in a way that she just opened her heart to you. This is the child I wanted. This is yeah, what I works think... for me. It's And you think, you know, who are we to judge? Each other walking down a street in a in a busy, you know, Western metropolis or mm. this woman whose, whose mother is now happy to say, I have a four-legged grandchild and no problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think we're we're very fortunate because it is just the two of us, and you know we we deliberately shoot with smaller cameras. Yes. We don't use lights, and we take time. You know, like we we have to sort of dart around the world, and sometimes we're only in a place for a few weeks. But you know, a good seventy percent of the time is spent with the cameras off, and and you know I think we 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 take the time to let people know what we're doing, what we're talking about, and I think people are you know by the time we come to talk are sort of keen to keen to tell their story and I think that that there is something maybe a little bit different in in that where we're very fortunate to get those um more revealing moments from people yeah this is sort of the main joy of, of of making the film I think and 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 to your point we never want to make fun of people so Correct. I think people understand that mm -hmm. and 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 therefore they're willing to open up and I'll also say it's really important to have a great translator so for example with that with the story of Viviana um she lives in Lima Peru our our translator there um was a local young female filmmaker and I think she really earned uh, Viviana's trust as well. Nice. Um, so having having a great translator who can also, you know, uh, help gain that trust of a subject is really important. And and so you, it, it helps to be young veterans. I'm calling you young, you know, comparatively to Stanley we'll take it. Yeah. Take, someone, <laughs> take it because that way it means you got tons of more decades of work, good work <laughs> ahead of you. W one story that was divine to me, and I've been viewing many many street dog. Um, movies for the Dog Film Festival. And also mm -hmm. there's a lovely film that just come out, come out called Stray. Yep. 
And so you have a, a well-loved street dog in Santiago, Chile. And I think, okay, this is going to be, they're going to have an opinion. Matt and Rose are going to, they're, they're going to lead me somewhere with this, somewhere that I may not suspect. And the amazing thing was that everybody thought this dog was his or hers. And this yes. dog yes. had, you know, we've heard this about cats, you know, like they, they have a home and then the people two doors down think that it's their cat. But yes. a dog, people with a dog store, and these various other people, all of whom viewed him as theirs. And this dog was truly a sort of the mayor of that town, yes. the way he way trotted around. Yeah. Wasn't that cool? Yeah, and it was an amazing story to get. Um, we we had um, worked with a um, our translator and, and and researcher down in Santiago. You know, we we tried to be very unconventional with how yes. we found people, and she she actually um, gives gives really cool street tours in the city, and like that's that's her business. I'm like, well, she walks everywhere. She'd know if there's any interesting stories, and and she told us about. Um, about uh, Chino, the, uh, the 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 this this famous ma- the mayor of the area. Yes. And um, it, the the funniest thing was that he lived such his own independent life that we kind of travelled all the way down to Chile, and we had no idea if he was actually going to be there when we turned up. You know, that's kind of part of the. That's part right. Of the, the, the chance you take. And and luckily um, we were meeting with Vanessa, the pet store owner who sort of looks after him. And, uh, and the first day that we turned up, he was sitting out the front waiting, like he, like he was waiting for his uh, close up. So uh, <laughs> luckily he, he was around for us, but yeah, it was amazing. Even whilst filming, we sort of had a rough guide of some of the people that considered uh, him their dog, like cons- thought it was his, their yes, dog. But yes. um but uh, like we found more, even because we would follow him, we'd sort of track him like uh, <laughs> throughout the night, and we would find these extra owners. Let's just say there's a reason he's so fat, and that's <laughs> he's, he's being fed by multiple people. And <laughs> he accepts them each and goes, "Oh, thank you. I I really don't mind if I do." And meanwhile, he's already had three teas and yeah, four dinners. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> it's great. Now you clearly wanted other parts of the world other than Western. You got yourselves to Karachi, Pakistan, but who do you find but this really unusual woman who does not identify as a woman even though the notes that come with your film refer to her as a muslim woman she identifies as neither male nor female and is already ostracized for that plus she teaches a sport ostracized for that plus she saves this dog who was in the most horrible condition luckily we you didn't ever see him in that condition you saw him made well by her and she's ostracized in so many ways and she simply holds her head up i don't know if she likes to be called her or they or what have you that's you know the proper pronoun to use these days how did you find her um again uh down to getting a really great researcher. So we we knew we wanted to film in in a Muslim majority country because um, uh, we knew that would be uh, you know an interesting perspective on the relationship between humans and dogs because usually they're not kept as pets. Right. Um, and so we we reached out and uh, we, we ended up working with a, an independent reporter in Karachi um, called Hani and she uh, had done you know work for. Um, BBC and things like that and we told her we're interested in telling a story about someone who who owns and loves a dog and she went off and did her research and she you know struggled wow. a bit and then she found Beanish and we all knew straight away that's the story yes <laughs> yeah. indeed that's the one. it's um, yes yeah. so it just, she, yeah, she it, met with Beanish and and uh and and you know convinced her to be a part of our film which was fantastic 
And she looked completely comfortable doing it, although she lives in a state, let's say, of social discomfort. And she doesn't, she just accepts that. She's different. She has different interests. She has different abilities. And this dog who basically has three legs, although one is sort of there, but he's very well. I mean, he's very well. Mm -hmm. And she nursed him back from from completely abandonment and in terrible condition. It's it's wonderful. It's great because it's like, wow, would I have the courage to do that? Would I have the love of dog to do that? And then I'm sure you had a little bit of a hard time deciding which country where they eat dogs you would consider. Mm. So you have South Korea, you have China, the northern part of China, and you have Vietnam, and you picked Vietnam. And I imagine that was – a. and those of you who are going to watch We Don't Deserve Dogs, which it has to be every single person listening, it's just a wonderful film. You don't see anything disturbing other than the fact that people are cutting up and eating some meat and you know that it's a dog. Did you did you really worry about whether to even include that? It was it was a tough decision. Yeah, um, you know it, it's interesting, and and it's I think it's interesting for me because I actually uh, have um, Asian heritage, and so it's always that you know it's almost a running joke amongst people in the Asian community is like people always ask you know you to be asked on the school you know on the school grounds you know like oh do you eat dogs sort of thing, and so at first it was it was easy to you know it would have been easy to avoid, but if, as we told people we were going around and we we're going to make this film about dogs the relationship between humans and dogs around the world. The question kept coming, how are you going to handle this? And it it it, it started to become that omitting it was not telling the the complete story. Right, you know, right. we have these unique mm-hmm. relationships with animals around the world. Uh, you know, we have all these different relationships with animals. And to not dwell on this, to not even look at this part of it, I think would have been it would have been obvious in leaving it out to us. And so even though that means that, you know, there's, it may be tough for some people to watch, you know, and we try, and you know, we, with everything we do, we try to do things in an unjudgmental way. Just look at how people live their lives. This is a, an ordinary part of life for a part of the world. Yes. It's not ordinary for us, but therein lies, therein lies the rub. That's where all the, uh, that's where we can learn to how to understand other cultures is by looking at not just the similarities, but the differences too. Absolutely. And you did did it really well, very tastefully, thoughtfully, and unsensationally, and undisturbingly other than a fact. But there's so many facts Mm. in the world that are disturbing. Many facts Mm. in the world, like the fact that those children in Uganda were used as soldiers and saw their brothers and sisters killed and had their limbs chopped off. I mean, you know, we're so quick to say, oh, I can't believe they eat dogs. Hey, how about in Uganda, they chop people up in front of little children and then take them as slave soldiers. You know, we have, I think it's really great. It gives a fabulous perspective. We've run out of time, but some of the other places at this film takes you and it's pre-pandemic so Matt and Rose could go everywhere and take us with them and there's no masks and boy those are bygone times there's yeah. Istanbul and there's Nepal and there's Finland it's just it's wonderful congratulations to both of you I'm very excited at the idea that maybe some small jewel-like parts of this movie might find their way into the dog film festival you really have done an incredible service to all dog lovers and to anyone who loves to travel thank you so much Thank you so much for having us. This show is supported in part by Meet Me, a privately owned farm in Virginia that makes raw frozen foods and dehydrated treats for cats and dogs using animals raised on their own farm. This show is also brought to you by Merrick Pet Food, which began as a family-run company in Texas 30 years ago where they are still making natural pet food. 
I am so glad that I was able to snag Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein from where they're in a wonderful, safe COVID bubble during this still dubious time. But this dubious time has had a big news release just recently about flea and tick collars and flea and tick spot on chemicals. And this is just the beginning in the Northeast, at least, although in places like Arizona and California, it's year round of the season where these monster parasites jump onto our animals. And for those of you who never really worried about a flea or a tick collar, I hope you read the report by the FDA, which was very overdue in coming. They could have told us this 10 years ago, that hundreds of dogs have died and tens of thousands of people have actually gone on record about adverse reactions to these flea and tick prevention chemicals. So obviously, who would I turn to but Bob and Susan, who have never liked chemicals? You guys were at the forefront of, gee, might there be something dangerous slathering all these kind of killer toxic chemicals on our animals? Do you feel vindicated or just sad and sorry that that consumers are so late to the knowledge party? Uh, terribly sad. And the truth is that it hasn't gotten any better. We started out in the 80s when the nerve ga- the, the, uh, the collars were derived from nerve gas, which is what we were killing people with in Vietnam. When we detected that younger animals were coming down with degenerative diseases and chronic rashes, uh, deducted that it was coming from those flea collars, um, that, you know, that was, that was then. Wow. Um, it hasn't gotten any better. Wow. It, it's archaic. It's archaic and it's unethical. Yeah. And the quote that we use is that we just are just philosophically opposed yes. to use the, using the animal's body as a delivery system to kill a flea and tick. It just doesn't make sense. You know, there are much better ways to approach that. That's 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 a really good point. And I'm stunned by the, the timeline, Susan. It must be very frustrating and sad for you. We're talking the 80s. I mean, 40 years. And it's it's actually gotten worse because the collar that's most under attack, if you will, by the facts in terms of death is the Soresto collar which isn't just to be put on once a month, but to be put on and left on for six to eight months. I guess that that those of us that were too blasé, and I hope everyone will get a little less blasé like real fast, thought, well, that's handy. Now I don't have to remember on the first of the month to put this on. I just put it on and leave it. How did people not think, well, it must be eight, six to eight times more potent, more lethal, more chemicalized to last so long? I mean, isn't that pretty obvious to you guys who see in a holistic way? I, I'm, I'm, I'm asking, but I'm also guessing your belief is you put on a repellent externally, as, although you have internal products too, but you have to do it every time you go out. Why is That's what we do with ourselves. We spray the, the bottoms of our pants and our shoes and our legs or shorts with a repellent every time we go out. As humans, we don't for ourselves or our children, we don't put anklets on our children that are made of toxic chemicals and leave it on, you know, for the entire summer or spring. How come no one kind of figured that out? Well, the only good, the only good part about these 
insecticides and pesticide products is that they, they do tell you, they warn you, don't per- let your children touch them. Yeah. They do and, say uh, that? that? That's about the only honest thing that, that we're seeing these days. It's a warning. So if your human children cannot touch them, you know, we, we need to be thinking about that a little bit more. It, 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 this is going to require a great deal of education. Uh, we just got out of an earth animal meeting. We have a team of people uh, helping us to create the awareness that it is going to take. There is another way of doing this, and we, we, need, to, we need to get started today. Uh, the side effects, uh, besides the fatalities, the, side, the common side effects are, they're, they're just, they're every day. You mm-hmm. know, we have, we have anxiety, we have apathy, we have epilepsy, we have chronic skin irritation. And, and, you know, and death, unfortunately. And death. So uh, it's, about, it's about quality of life and it's about saving lives. It is. And, and it's possible to spray your dogs. I mean, you guys make a very nice spray. I have it by my back door. So you can spray yeah. your dogs once a day. And it, is it made mostly of essential oils? Because those are known to have repellent qualities. Is that what it's made of? Uh, yes. The, the spray is, is basically repellent oils, you know, volatile oils, you know, that really help. But, you know, if we even say on the package, if the dog goes in for a swim, reapply it. Yes. Because it's going to disappear. So yes. it's not something that lasts eight months. You know, you have to just constantly redo it in order to repel fleas and ticks. And you know, the spray, the spray is, is just really an add-on to our core program. Our core program is really, really simple. It, it, it's two products that works on the inside and topically. It's, you're gonna love this, Tracy. Our herbs are cultivated and grown in the green mountains of Vermont. Oh, I love that. And, and, and you know, besides, besides building the immune system, and supporting the animal's uh, ability to ward off fleas and ticks organically and naturally, herbs have other benefits for the immune system. Um, so we, we suggest that you, know, you feed the herb, herbal powder every day, and you also invest in the topical repellent protection of the flea collar. Voila, you know, I mean, it's, that's it, it's really easy. And you're getting all the all the benefits from from green plants, and and animals if they were cruising around in the wild they'd be munching on them. Their their natural intelligence, their natural healing ability would be surfacing, and they'd be munching on these greens anyway. And they'd be rolling in them. I mean, they they there is obviously some natural draw to things that help them. They they don't sit around eating poison oak or you know rolling in that. If, if they were, if they had access to these other really specialized herbs, I'm sure they would want them. What's interesting is that aren't there two sort of big organ systems of the body? One is the skin, right? That's one of our biggest. That um, is the that is the biggest. And then we have the gut, but we have the gut also. So if you're inject, if you the dog or even you the human are ingesting products that are natural does it make your gut work better does it make it because it's part of the immune system very big part of it that people just don't think about for themselves or their dogs 72 percent 
of the immune system is in the gut. A lot of people don't understand yes. that. Right. Yes. So the, you know, it's, it's called the microbiome, and the microbiome, it makes up literally 70% of the immune system. And, and the primary function is to obviously break food down so the food can be absorbed and used uh, you know, to nourish the cells and keep the, uh, the body going. Yes. But the immune system is in there also. So the line of defense against any kind of invader from the outside, be it a, a chemical, an insecticide, you know, an allergen, anything like that, is going to be either hit by the skin or hit by the intestinal tract and the microbiome. So they're challenged all the time, and their function is to protect the body. When you use chemicals that have adverse side effects, what you're really doing is breaking down the body's natural defense, and the immune system goes down, and the animal will eventually get sick. So and obviously everything's interconnected in the body. Yes. So these neurotoxins, of course, are affecting the brain and the nervous system. The blood is dirty. The blood is just chemicalized blood. It's filthy dirty. And the, 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 the detoxification organs, the liver and the kidneys, they are overworking every day to dump out these poisons. Talk about stress. Yeah. I mean, come on. And, and you know, it's, it's funny when you talk about putting on the spray in terms of the external part, the skin, using the skin to protect it and, and to defend it. You know, we, we, when, we, when you guys and I were growing up, any of we baby boomers or older, there was no such thing as sunblock. I'm a redhead very pale skin redhead. I would burn to the point of blistering all throughout my life. No one knew any better. No one, I mean, there was not even such a thing as a rash guard shirt. But now that in in this generation and several generations, we know you have to put on sunblock constantly. If you swim, if you sweat, if some number of hours have gone by, we accept that. We don't say let's put uh, whatever the equivalent of a chemical collar would be on a human to keep the sun away, we cover ourselves. We protect ourselves yeah. that way. So it's to be interesting to try and get people to understand that an anti-insect spray is the same thing, especially if it's made of non-chemicals. You have to put it yeah. on repeatedly, but that's not a bad thing. It doesn't mean it's weak or useless. It means that makes sense, just like a sunblock. I mean, there's no pill you swallow to keep from getting burned or to keep the bad rays off, right? People accept sunblock as a concept. In fact, they embrace it. It, It's why, I wonder why, well, I guess we were trained to be lazy about fleas and ticks. Here, put a collar on. Back in the day, you could only get them at the supermarket. Wasn't Hearts the only, the original flea collar, I want to think, before? No, the, actually, the, I was on the team that developed the original flea collar in the early 70s. No. And it was Shell, it was the Shell Oil Company. So the oh, my God. So the original flea collar in the early 70s was Shell. Hearts obviously picked it up after that. Right. You know, but we did all testing and it was organic phosphate and we did all the testing on that and then it became commercial under shell that was the united states army testing not ours yeah not ours. i want to bring clarity no 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 that is clear that is clear but it's really interesting to see the genesis of these products there used to be a shell pest strip you hung in your food pantry 
to keep yes. flies and moths off. So you were hanging chemicals that were off-gassing into your food pantry. That used to be the way people thought, oh, chemicals are good. We were dumb. We were ignorant of of the, the downside of putting chemicals. Even now there's people who on a monthly basis have the inside and outside of their home sprayed by a, a company at huge cost that pouring chemicals all over the outside of their house, the inside of their house, in case they might get an ant. It's like, wow. Yeah. What People and, have got yeah, to understand. It's so dangerous. There's a, bigger story, there's, there's a bigger story related to that. In doing that, in constantly bombarding fleas and ticks with chemical pesticides that kill them, the ones that survive become mutated and more resistant. They're called yes. the super flea or the super tick. Yes. And they need they need stronger and stronger remedies to kill them. And that's the way the flea and tick industry has gone to where we now have a Soresto, which is so strong, it lasts for eight months and unfortunately is killing animals. It's like you, you've heard of the cockroach that can live through nuclear war. Yes. That's where, that's where we're going. That's where we're going to take the yeah. So at least on your own property or the places that you go, whether they're fields or dog parks or even uh, – I know people in Vermont that – a woman who's had a Lyme disease a number of times and has really been, been harmed by it. She only walks her dogs on a leash on sidewalks. She, it's hard to think there are any in Vermont, but there are. And – the, yeah. the fleas and ticks, the ticks actually, never mind fleas, the, the ticks get on her dogs anyway. I guess they leap off this, the grass on the side, but she's holistic. She's an acupuncture chiropractor vet and totally holistic and trained in Chinese herbs. And she would never dream of using any of those products on any of her animals. But but those those are pretty aggressive ticks. They must be hungry as can be. You don't want to blast them because then the weaker ones die off. And as you said, it's like the problem of overusing antibiotics, which everyone now no, understands absolutely. that, you know, super yeah. bugs in yeah. that way. I just think that this is a chance for people in general. They're going to believe what the FDA says. They should also question why the FDA kept this so quiet. Was it maybe the big pharma lobby? Hmm, I wonder, all these years. Yeah. But now you have to stop and say the problem isn't one brand or one delivery system. It's the idea of chemicalizing your pet's life and their lifestyle. Right. You have to do it less. You know, you just yeah. have to do it less, i.e. don't do it and and lean towards natural, environmentally happy, safe products that keep your, your animals strong without making the bugs strong. I guess that's sort of what it boils down to. Well, yeah, it takes a commitment. You've got to constantly be after it, and you've got to do it on a daily basis instead of using one thing that lasts for eight months. Yes. But the, the result of that is you're going to wind up with a healthier animal that lives longer with less side effects. So that's the education that needs to get to consumers and pet parents that doing it the natural way is going to be more time consuming for them, but you're going to wind up with a healthier animal. I, I also think part of the problem is, is our fear, our justifiable fear of tick-borne diseases, yes. Yes. not just in our animals, but in ourselves. So that hasn't helped it any. And I think that, um, part of that, part of the issue is that 
we are not aware of the fact that over and above a conventional approach to, let, let's say, Lyme disease, there is an effective nutritional support program. As an example, my, my sister is, it has been suffering with Lyme disease, and she went on a master herbalist program. Uh, there's a very famous herbalist. His name is Donnie Yance. He was the he specializes in treating women's cancer herbally. Okay. And she went on this program, and she is symptomatically free. Um, nice. If, when you understand that there is a nutritional part to all of this, it helps to reduce our own anxieties, which helps us make a decision, which gives us the courage to go organic. That's, a, that's really well said. We've run out of time, but you said that really eloquently. It does take courage, but you the fear of the unknown, there's all kinds of unknowns. But, but going natural if you do it intelligently and use products that are that are intelligent themselves is the is really the solution bob and susan goldstein you guys are pioneers you continue to have the same passion you did 40 and 50 years ago i really salute you for that and i'm really grateful to have your wisdom here thank you so much all right Tracy. thank you so much for including us together yeah have a great day stay safe in vermont take take good take good care thank you This show is also brought to you by Evermore Pet Food, privately owned by two women who make cooked dog food frozen in pouches shipped directly to your home. This show is also supported by Earth Animal Holistic Pet Wellness Products, privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein. I feel so lucky to meet a guy called the Trap King. Those of you not in the cat world think, the what? Trap, neuter, return is a really big part of of loving cats and taking good care of them. And there is a man called Sterling Davis, known as the Trap King. He has started the Trap King Cat Human Solutions, which is a nonprofit. And he wants to reach out to more men to be involved in, in cat rescue. And I imagine also more people of color. Sterling, welcome to the show. And congratulations on having become a king at a young age. Right. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. It's great to have you here. I think it's it's so cool when guys get involved with cats, but I think also you set a fantastic example as a very hip, cool black man to people of color, especially in cities, who may think only of, of people rescuing cats as like kind of crazy little old white ladies. And instead, right. you brought it more into the mainstream. Talk about what the reaction was to you when you first started being this guy who says, we're going to trap, neuter, and return and maintain colonies of cats. Did people think you'd lost your mind? Oh, yeah, definitely my friends. A lot of my buddies thought I was, I mean, to leave, I was doing music. So to leave yes. a, a music tour and go to rescue some cats, they were like, well, okay, <laughs> Sterling has lost his mind. He's clear. He's finally gone off on the deep end. First, we just thought he was messing with cats and painting his nails, but now he's definitely gone off on the deep end with this one. So, it was it was it, from my friends and family. It was like, what in the world? Why would you stop doing music for that? And then for a lot of people in the rescue world, for not seeing somebody like me usually doing what I'm doing, they were like, okay, are you serious about this? Like, we're not used to seeing somebody like you doing this that's actually how i got my first job is that that's what they told me we just don't see a lot of people like you doing stuff and loving cats like this so what was the first job uh well actually my first job 
wasn't even um, TNR. My first job in the cat rescue world, I was just scooping litter. I worked for the county shelter. Wow. And that was what I started doing, just scooping litter. I thought it would be something easy for me to do until I went back on a music tour. I didn't know that I would dive in it hard first and stay in it. Isn't that something? my life. You know, I'm sure you you know of Jackson Galaxy, but Jackson's life, very similar. A guy who didn't look at all like anybody else in the cat world and started doing the grunt work in a shelter and found a calling. And I think Jackson was involved in music, too. Do you regret having left the music world? Oh, no, I don't regret it at all. And I I actually I do. I know exactly. met Jackson. We talked a few times. He's actually helped me out a lot, Good. Give, giving Good. me some advice on stuff. Good. So I, I'm proud of that. I love Jackson. He helped me. Um, he was a big inspiration for me getting started. But um, I don't regret. I don't regret uh, not doing music. I st- I've learned to somewhat combine the two. I've done a couple cat rap songs, and I don't. I don't regret it though. I mean, it, it's a lot of it's a lot of musicians and people that go on stage and look cool. And sound cool, and that's great. But this is something that I feel like can change the world. This is more so about my legacy and helping others. I've always wanted to have a positive impact on every living creature's path that I cross. So this is helping me do that. Not saying that I couldn't do it with music, but this is just on a totally different level. So I don't, there's no regrets at all. I, I, I love what I do. Isn't that great? And styling cool, that's a really good way of putting it because you and Jackson have extremely distinct looks. You know, you really push it to the edge of the way guys, you know, whether it's their glasses, their hair, tattoos, painting your fingernails, uh, the clothing choices. I think it's really a fantastic image, especially for young black men, because you are so hip and cool, to know that you can be and do anything, but there can be compassion at the core of it. It doesn't have to be about money, success, or even expressing things violently. It can be about nurturing. Were your parents very instrumental in this sort of tendency of yours to feel this desire to make a compassionate difference? Well, I grew up in an abusive uh, background. I, I, you know, I, I grew up dealing with custody battles. I would stay with my mom, then I would stay with my grandmother. Wow! And I would stay with a lot of different family members in different cities because of, of poverty, abuse, addiction, mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. to that degree. So mm-hmm. that that I think that those things kind of helped shape me and want. I wanted to, I've always wanted to do more. I've always wanted to be a voice for the voiceless because I felt voiceless. Yes, of course. When I was little Mm -hmm. being abused, I didn't feel like I had a voice or somebody that would come help me out. So to be able to be there for cats that way, I I think that shaped me a lot. My upbringing shaped me, shaped who I am today a lot. That in the military as well. You were in the military? Yeah, I was in the Navy. No kidding. So, wow, this is a pretty interesting life arc, Sterling, because I'm very touched that, you know, at your openness about the hardship of your upbringing. And and so many of us think of kids that are are in these very difficult situations without stability, without strong parental guides, and abused and ignored and treated like a ping pong ball, let's say. And then we understand, oh, no wonder they wind up in juvie or in prison or doing bad things because that's all that's been modeled for them. But we also know that the human spirit has great resilience, just like the animals that 
get mistreated and abused and abandoned, and they're they're forgiving. And it seems like you've embraced those qualities that I don't think enough of us find in other people. And I I just want to salute you for that. It's a, a great model for other people that either look like you or look so different from you that they still are attracted, you know, to the message of what you're doing. I think it's, I think it's really marvelous. Thank you so much. I mean, I I love it. I really love what I do. And I think that, I think things like uh, rescue animals, uh, like music, like comedy, these type of things can bring people together. And I'm hoping that I can use that to do that, to show, to educate people and also bring people together. Definitely. I, I, you and I will talk after the interview because I've never met you before. I always go out of my way to, to not bring any preconceived knowledge or experience of a guest as best I can because I like to have the discovery of the person along with my audience. But I'd love to involve you in the Cat Film Festival since it travels the country. And while you're in Atlanta and that's where you started your nonprofit, your desire is to spread the idea of trap neuter release as far and wide as you can, and also to involve people who otherwise might not find a way to make a difference. You know, I think that's something everyone's looking for, is a way to feel needed and and successful at doing something positive. And the work you're promoting is that work. There will never be no cats needing help. We could say maybe dogs can all get eventually taken care of, you know, in society, but cats never will be. There's just too many of them. And I think it's the nature of human society. There will just always be community cats, stray cats, loose cats who need who need uh, saviors and protectors. Talk a little bit about the about the Navy. How old were you when you went into the Navy? I went right after high school. Um I didn't want to, you know, it was either school or the military, but I was, my, at the time I was staying with my aunt and she was like, you, you, you doing one of them. You you going to school or you, you going to the military, but you're getting out of here. You got to go do something. Go be a man. So Good. I decided to go to the military because I wanted to travel. Yes. Um, and I, and I, and I think that helped. I think ultimately I, I feel like coming from a music career, music background and going to the military, I think those two things actually helped me do what I do now because I've in the military you work with you travel you work with different people different cultures so you become comfortable with communicating with all different types of people and with music you become comfortable with being on stage or delivering a message so I think ultimately both of them music and the military helped me deliver the message I'm delivering now about TNR community cat care breaking stereotypes as far as hyper masculinity and everything that comes with it Interesting when you say hypermasculinity because being a cat carer, giver, rescuer would be the opposite of that. It would be the soft, gentle, nurturing, maternal side of a human, not the hypermasculinity. Do you think that in the that particularly in the black culture, aside from music, just the black culture, uh, this the sort of call it inner city. I don't know if it's called the inner city anymore, but, but not sort of further out more rural, but in, in inner city that, that young black men or even young brown men have to dis or feel they have to display hyper masculinity and that kindness and softness towards animals would be inappropriate. Oh yeah. It comes with, it comes with poverty. I mean, they call it the concrete jungle a lot of times. Right. And, and you know, you have to display toughness, 
strength. You know, everybody's trying to pull and come out of that situation. So you have people that are desperate. Um, you can get robbed. Yes. You know, looking vulnerable or looking nice can can be a bad thing. So we grow up feeling like, you know, you got to stay tough. You got to be cool. You got to always right. portray this image of, of toughness. So if you have something like cats and compassion and volunteering, then <laughs> that's the last thing on a lot of people's mind. And I want to, that's something I want to do is show that you still can be cool. You don't lose cool points for compassion. That's <laughs> one of my favorite. Nice. That's one of my favorite yes. sayings. And, and I, I just, I just want to show that. I want to show that. And, and in the cat world, it's not a, you know, we, we put genders on this. Like I, I've had, I grew up with so many male friends and they'd say, Hey man, why don't you, um, why you got all the cats? Why don't you have a dog? Like boys supposed to have dogs. Right, like, right. Where did that, where did that come from? Yes. Why is that? Why mm-hmm. is that? Mm-hmm. Where did that come from? And it's, and it ultimately is something that I feel like it, it hinders, you know, the situation for our cats because they've basically been given one demographic that can have or, or help them. And that's not the case. That's, that It shouldn't be that way. Well said. Very well said. I think the Navy did you a lot of good. I mean, it's those of us that haven't been in the military don't know what the experience is like, but I know that it's definitely a way out for people from situations that may be purely economic or they could be social and economic. And I'm really I'm really happy that you did that service and came out of it strengthened and articulate and confident. I mean, those are all great qualities. I'm wondering what it's like to be a black man in a white world looking after cats. Now, we know these horrible racist events where a black bird watcher in New York gets called out by that Karen woman, whose name wasn't really Karen, but a Karen, right? (laughs) Right. So there you are, you're in a city, you're in Atlanta or, or wherever you might be doing your good work, and you're maybe crawling around behind a dumpster to find these little kittens or these cats or putting out a trap. Have you encountered people looking askance at you or thinking you're a danger or having that that you know don't be a black man doing a good deed oh yeah yeah i've i've definitely had a lot of that and it's it's crazy because i've had that on both ends of the spectrum like i i one of the main reasons i i dove in heart first and, and and stuck with this is because i would go to i would do tnr and i would be in a predominantly black neighborhood and I've had gentlemen walk up to me and, and question me about what I was doing. But they went on to tell me that, hey, man, you know, white people put tracking devices and diseases in these cats and then they dump them to harm. Oh, the black my community. God. And I was like, when I first heard that, when they told me that, I was like, wow, that's so far from what's actually happening. And right then and there, I wanted to explain. I did explain to them, but I wanted to carry on and say, hey, this is not these these uh conspiracy theories about right. uh, cat rescue and cats is, is completely wrong. That's not what's happening. So I wanted to bridge that gap. So I, I, I would get it from going in predominantly black neighborhoods. And then I've been in predominantly white neighborhoods where I've had guns pulled out on me because it's like, okay, this guy, <laughs> this bald yeah, right. tattoo man right. is in my yard at one o'clock in the morning. He says he's here for the cat. Like, <laughs> honey, get my gun because clearly he's lying. There's no way in the world this guy's here for the cat. And I'm, I'm standing there like pointing to my shirt like, no, seriously, look, it's a cat shirt. All I have is cat clothes. I'm really here for the cat. Oh, my so gosh. It's been on both ends of the spectrum. 
to have people question and wonder. But again, I'm I, I'm I'm grateful for the military because I I think that was able to broaden my horizons and, and get me, you know, thinking outside of the box that yes. I was in because that's that's what it is. A lot of times when you're born in poverty like that, you're still in that same box. I still have friends that I call that haven't even left the city of Detroit where I was born. They still haven't gone to travel places and, and you could almost hear it in their voice that they kind of, I don't know, stagnant, stuck maybe. It's yes. hard to progress yes. or come out of a certain way of thinking because they haven't had those things available to them. So the, the military definitely provided a way for me to travel and get out of, you know, that box that I was thinking inside of or where I was raised. And also have a different perception of yourself. I mean, that's right, the thing. Right. You put on a uniform and you go through that training and you survive it or you excel at it. And then on some level, everybody's equal. They're all a member of the Navy or a right. member of whichever branch of the military. And that's a rare thing. I mean, I'm sure there's racism right. in the military, but there's something more egalitarian it, about it. You know, it's like we're all together. We are part of one community. We are brothers on some level. That has to be very right. freeing when you grow up in a racist world that's very unfair it's to a kid whose parents so are much. a wreck, right? And and you come out of the right. wreck and you turn into something that's a beam of light. I think it's it's pretty fabulous, Sterling. I I definitely want to work with you as as whatever I can do to help trap kinghumane.org to to spread that message. It, it's a message on many levels. It, it empowers children, too, if, if you give it a chance. You've had a wonderful children's book written about you that I'll put a link to called Trap King for a Day Marvin, written by Alyssa Ruby yeah. and illustrated by Rachel yeah. Martin. And this is a wonderful book for, for all kids, but there's so few really good, wonderful books for kids of color, you know, that depict them in pictures and depict them in the writing and and it's it's really got the great message for the next generation. So everything you're doing is great. I'm really happy to meet you and happy to spread the word of what you're doing. It's it's tremendous. On, on the human as well as cat level, you're doing great saving. So thank you for being here and thanks Thank for everything you're doing in every community you come into. Everybody be nice to Sterling Davis, the trap king. Don't be saying any bad words or pulling out any guns on him, okay? He is the good guy. Thank you, Sterling. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the guests as much as I did. Kiss your kitties and hug your pooches, and we will talk again next week. Bye for now.